0: You meet more interesting people in a boxing club than you do in any other institution because they're all coming with it from different motivations. You know, you've got the you've got the manic, crazy person who just wants to calm down and discipline themselves, so, learn some self-discipline, so they're not going to get into trouble and bother. You've got the person who's got no confidence at all, who's timid, who wants to kind of sort of um, who wants to kind of be tougher and develop a sense, you know, a a bit of confidence and and a second skin. And you would never get anywhere in the world where these two types of people become friends.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Tourist Information. My guest this week is the author Irvine Welsh, You know him from Train Spotting, but he's also written 10 other books and four books of collected stories. He's working in documentary and TV. He's extraordinarily busy. We'd line this up for some time, but I'm thrilled that he came on. Some fun, kind of intimate details about what it was like for him to become famous in 1993 and how his life changed, uh, coming from where he did in Scotland and Edinburgh, uh, growing up in public housing. This is a fascinating trajectory that he's had. And he was really kind, really fun, and generous. It's always awkward to meet somebody via a cold call on Skype. Uh, but I hope you enjoy Irvine Welsh. I wonder for for you, it seems like COVID has been, I, how much of an impetus has it been to be productive? Because you sound incredibly busy right now.
0: Yeah, I'm just, it's been crazy. I've got, you know, I've, I've got involved in um, different, we've um, two different, two shows here that we're working on. Um, one's Green Lantern is going to go and in, is, is in, um, we're going to film it in um, the spring. And the other one we're just developing over here with BBC. Uh, And I've got two shows over in America that um, I'm developing, one with Brett Easton Ellis and another one with a producer that I've worked with for a while. Uh, So yeah, so we're kind of, um, we're sort of um, really, really busy. I've got, you know, there's other projects, I've got my music projects on the go, uh, which I'm not, I can't get out and tour or DJ or anything like that now because of COVID, but um, we've got these on the back burner and ready to go. Uh, I've got novels as well. I've kind of written four novels, basically, you know. So I want to sort of work out not not during COVID, but they've all you know they've all been you know three of them have been kind of closed during COVID. So I don't want to. Um, I brought out a book with uh, John King and Alan Warner just recently, a collection of novellas, just the other week, just this week. And I've done a documentary that just showed last night on um, TV in the UK on uh, offense and art so i've kept busy you know it's like it's what i'm finding though is that um i'm very focused but i'm finding that things have taken a bit longer than they normally do you know it's just the concentration levels um it's taking me you know a lot um you know like to to write 5000 words would t- usually would take me a, a kind of a day basically going flat out and banging it you know now it's probably about two or three days to do the same amount of words
1: hmm. What was it like? I mean, your first novel came out in '93. I was kind of curious to know how much of a struggle was it for that first book for you.
0: I mean, it wasn't a struggle at all. It wasn't a struggle to write because I'd had it in my head for so long. You know, when I sat down to to you know, to, to commit it to paper, it was actually some kind of liberation, really, because I've been you know I've been messing around with the ideas of it in my head for such a while. Um, and it wasn't a struggle getting it published. I mean I was really fortunate that there was such a kind of scene in Edinburgh at the time and it was back at Edinburgh, which is my hometown and I am usually usually based in London but I was I was working there short term and uh, there was all these great writers there you know there was um, Alan Warner and Barry Graham and Kevin Williamson Duncan McLean they were all getting published by London publishing houses, so there was a scene there, and there was like people were reading their work and you know and I got into putting on club nights with Kevin Williamson because it was—I like, was kind of big into rave and dance music at the time, and uh, it seemed to be a nice thing to do. You know, put on poetry readings, and you know, when you when, when everybody's kind of um, being fucked up in the clubs, and they come back and they're all like, "What can we do? You know, we need some stimulus, but we don't want to keep taking drugs and dancing all." You know, so have a few, have a you know, have, you know, have a, have a smoke or a drink and relax, and you know, listen to some poetry kind of being read in this cafe maybe a little bit of ambient music and stuff like that you know after the madman last night and it worked really well you know and uh, and they had open mic things and I started reading some of the stuff that I'd written um and it was going down really well uh, so I published one, one section as a story in the, this new writing Scotland book and um then it was from there. It was like publishers got in touch with me through, you know, mainly through Duncan MacLean, who was published in um, in London. And it was his publisher, Robin Robertson, who got in touch with me, and uh, he said, "Have you got any more of this stuff?" You know, and I, I kind of lied. I said, "Yeah, I've got." You know, so that it, it wasn't it wasn't properly realised as a novel. So that gave me the incentive to sit down and write it as a novel. And uh, I did that and um, the book did really well, you know, so it's like I've had no, you know, I've been trying to, you know, the the interesting thing is like I've been in bands for ages and, you know, and I've made music, you know, and haven't really gotten anywhere with it or any any mass success with it. Um, But this, you know, and I wasn't really that interested in literature, it just happened instantly. I was, it was very successful uh, and something that I wasn't really interested in. And I was totally unsuccessful in something that I'd been obsessing with and putting so much effort into for years. You know? So it's a, it's a strange, strange thing because it, n- it never usually works that way in life.
1: Um, somebody I had on the show who mentioned that you guys have crossed paths was D.B.C. Pierre. All right, Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He said to say hello. And uh, I wonder because I talked to him at length about both of you had a first book that blew up. And he described it as taking almost 15 years to recover from kind of the madness of winning the Booker Prize and and the success of it and the pressure of it to write his next books. Now, he's written several books after. I think you have 11 novels you've published in all and four collections of stories. but. What is that like when you have a book that travels around the world and generates such feeling both for and I know there was some outrage against train spotting also.
0: Yeah, I know, it's 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 you know, where that there's all this noise going on in the background around you, but the, the interesting thing about it was that um I kind of found something that I could do. That I really I mean, I'd always wanted to do something creative. I didn't I didn't want to do a nine to five sort of job. I thought, this is fucking brilliant, I've I found something that I can do, and I was so liberated by that that um, I, I couldn't believe that this had actually happened to me. So all I wanted to do was to write another book, you know, and I, I finished The Acid House, um, published it, I think, in the same year, and I just went on and on, and I didn't have any, you know, so I isolated myself from the, the reaction to it to an extent, you know. I just kind of went into this rabbit hole and just wrote and wrote and wrote. And um, I, you know, I raised my head and I dipped my toe into fame and all that. I did the usual kind of thing that people did, that people do did, you know. But I think the interesting thing as well, the culture had changed, and that if you're raving, if you're going out every night, kind of partying, you know, and kind of going out with the sound systems and stuff like that, you were already having it really big anyway. You know, it's like kind of you haven't you had, had a really big life, and I knew a lot of. Um, people who were really interesting a lot of people who were some of them who were quite well known and what they were doing and all that and dance music and um, and because I've been an old punk in London I knew a lot of um, people who'd been in the music scene there and some of them have been very successful so I always felt that um, it wasn't really an entry into a new world it was just maybe... Maybe I had more status in that world than I'd had before. You know, I was maybe like a, a kind of bottom feeder or a hanger on in that world or a marginal player, basically. And then I suddenly become one of the main people in it, you know, and then and then it's like 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 everything else, it's like um I didn't really I didn't really enjoy the spotlight because uh, I realized that being a a writer and being an author are two different things, you know. An author is this public figure who promotes his his writing and all that. And it wasn't a it wasn't what I really wanted to do, you know. I was much more into the the idea of just writing books, you know. But you know, obviously, if you're taken on by a a, a big publisher, it's a multinational. They want to return. They want you to get out and sell them, you know, because you know. So I was, you know, I kind of I I loved the 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 writer's life of you know the romantic idea just sitting in and working away and working on your book and then maybe um sort of going to the gym or going out to the, the cinema in the afternoon when you've done it, you know, and then just, you know, just really enjoying kind of doing that in that life. And um uh and I didn't really like the idea of being a uh, an author, particularly as I became a kind of um like a, a pop star author, because of the, you know the, the the pop culture kind of thing of transporting and how it, the film and all that meshed up um, with the with the kind of um, the Britpop kind of stuff and all that. So that was quite a strange thing because I just wanted you know it's like I did the I, want, I preferred to be left alone to get on with stuff and uh, I had a, a huge. Um, sort of collection of friends from all over the world that are kind of made off my own sort of bat basically without, kind of, you know, and, and I, I, I wanted to get around them, I didn't really, I wasn't really seeking out sort of new friends or new relationships or to be in a new kind of new place, I was happy with what I had. Um, and that's one thing that happens when you become famous, uh, uh, for want of a better term, that you're, it's expected that you'll replace all your old friends and associates with a bunch of new ones that, you know, who are people in a similar position to you. So, yeah, so that was the, that was the kind of the strange thing off it. It was like wanting to be a writer but becoming an author. You know, it was, it was, a, it was a funny thing. And that's something they never really tell you. It happens, basically.
1: Well, you, you grew up, your dad was a doctor and then became a carpet salesman. And your mother was a waitress. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so I'm curious you, you left school at 16. Uh, I'd love to hear a bit about, you know, you <laughs> you became a TV repairman for a little while. What were some of these other jobs that you had before you were a writer? And, and growing up in the housing schemes, I wonder how that informs, because it seems to inform so much of your writing.
0: Yeah, I think it was like I was kind of lucky because I went from um, the tenements in Leith to the the prefabs and Pilton to the Masonettes and Muir House, which is kind of going along the estuary, which is, is, you know, it's like, um, and to all the you know, this, this kind of public sector council housing thing, you know. Uh, and it was great because the people that, um, that I grew up with, at my pals, they were you know, they came for the similar sort of journey, so it was like a community, you know, they all remembered, you know, all the, the 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 place that I the prefabs that I lived in, in West Pilton Avenue when they were ripped down, um, it was exactly the same people in my street that moved into the 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 Masonette block at in Muirhouse. So it was like the same you know, so we were just decanted basically further down the, the the estuary. But um it was great because uh I always remember it as being like, you know, there's loads of kids and we're you know we're we're just we're just young kids, but we're kind of um We've all stuck together, and uh, a lot of my pals, my, my my closest pals, are still from that era. You know, my two closest pals, are, you know, that I've known since I was six years old. So, again, it, you know, it does inform you, you know, it's something that, can, that, that stays with you. There's a, it's quite I I didn't realize this until I'd lived other, all over the world and just other places, but there is such a strong kind of sense of community in North Edinburgh, I'm working class North Edinburgh, from Leith right along to. To Muir House and um, it's you know there is a there's a, a kind of shared sense and association of being from that part of the, the you know the the, the city basically um, and uh, yeah so I've, I've kind of fed off that you know it's got its own culture it's got its own values its own way of, of, of doing things um, and it's got its own kind of style and all that about it. so yeah it's, it's, I think that's very much kind of uh, it's very much affected me in
1: to, um, for me, as a writer. Well, and and when you left school at sixteen, what were some of these jobs you had before writing? Well, I know that you were in I the punk scene as
0: well. And, you know the the audiovisual technician thing. I um, had the um, I worked as a slabby, which is kind of putting slabs down, kind of concrete paving slabs down. That was be paved uh a, a, house, a, a scheme in the west of Edinburgh called Broomhouse. Um, I worked. Um, I worked in a, I worked in a, a library in uh, Stoke Newington for a while, uh, I worked for Hackney Council, uh, a clerical job, um, I, worked in, um, I worked in the Savoy Hotel in the kitchens, the Savoy Hotel as a kitchen porter, uh, and I did building work, I did a, did a lot of building work up, um, just basically kind of sort of labouring, brickies labouring, which is kind of very hard when you've got a Fucking quick bricky, you know, uh, is a is, is a is a tough job, um, and mainly sites all over London, really. Uh, and it was uh, so. I've kind of I've, I've done a lot of different jobs, uh, and I got I got employed to run these uh, this kind of um, temporary employment schemes for long term unemployed people to get long term unemployed people off the door, which was. Um, Greater London Enterprise Board, which is part of the GLC, and um, the um, the Manpower Services Commission, which was kind of a government-funded thing, and I used to set, kind of set these things up and run training projects and programs for them, and that's how that was my first kind of white-collar managerial type of job that you know became you know I made it. It's one of these things that um, I kind of made myself a job in a way of, of this and. Uh, it was like you know, like a lot of the. I was one of these public sector parasites, basically. That a lot of these kind of you know, <laughs> you create a lot of these kind of jobs, and you kind you know, you're, they're not you know, they're not kind of real jobs, but they, you know, you're you're very pompous and you're kind of you, know, you talk a good fight and all that, and then um, you know, they, so they, they they start throwing money your way, or they did back then, um, and I just did that for a while. I did that you know that kind of um, economic development, housing, training. Um, and uh, I came back to Edinburgh for a spell, and I got a couple of promotions there, which was you know quite a quite, quite fortuitous for me. And uh, and then it's like fortunately, you know, it was like the you know it was that situation where you know had a a great job, uh, beautiful wife, lovely lovely apartment, and um, kind of making money and everything like that. And I wasn't very happy in that uh, because. I wasn't doing anything creatively. I wanted to get back to. I needed I find, I need, I couldn't do the nine to five thing for any length of time. I needed to get back into, to something that was going to satisfy me a bit more. It needed to be something um, kind of. Uh, I thought you know punk's punk is dead now. You know this is this is my life. Is going to be a sort of um, uh, a kind of middle manager or some some sort now or or, and then I, I sort of realised that the whole acetose thing was kicking off. And I was on it was at that, that thing, I was on the cusp of thirty. And I thought, I'm, not, I'm too old for this, should I just you know I just I just fell right into it. I just dived headlong into it and I, it was like I got obsessed and lost in house music. And I think it was because of that that I became a writer because I was able to have kind of I had these notebooks about really kinda of about when I was a heroin addict it was for a couple of years that I couldn't really, um, the only thing I could do was to, was to record stuff in these notebooks and these notebooks became a kind of, you know, there was a lot of nonsense and fantasy and stories in them, they were almost like sort of um, little project books really, as well as, you know, as well as being diaries, they were, you know, sort of um, pre-association project books and little bits of fiction and um, little stories which which I think grew out of the ballads that I used to write when I was messing around in bands. So that was, uh, so I had these and I, I, this is when I had, you know, when I was working on this straight job and I was doing an MBA and it was everything was all set, And I thought, well, now's the time to kind of write this book that I'd always wanted to write to try and understand the, the mess that I got myself into a few years back, you know, so... Um, so that became transporting, basically. You know, it was like I was going out, I was raving, um, and then I was coming back in the morning and just writing a chapter. And then I was going to my work um, and doing quite a responsible job, but uh, I would have the, I would take the disc in with me and work on the book. um it must <laughs> I suppose, in my employer's time, which shouldn't have been my spare time. But so, that, so that gave me, you know, that gave me the um, the impetus to. To do that, you know, so it, it was—it uh, was basically being able to kind of get back into punk punk culture, get back into rave culture, to draw in that, uh, to draw in these things. that have always nourished me and helped me, in, you know, in my sort of life, and um, and they kind of helped me to become a writer. Basically, that was the sort of uh, that was the impetus of it all.
1: Hmm. Um, I wonder what kind of writers. Who were like your heroes as a kid, leading up to train spotting? Um, what writers were you reading? Artists were you influenced by? Filmmakers, that sort of thing.
0: I mean, I was obsessed with Bowie, basically, and you know, Bowie was for for our for for people like me, kind of like working class people in Britain. Bowie was a sort of great educator, you know, because he was incredibly generous with his references. So from Bowie, you could get into you got into Iggy Pop and Lou Reed and the whole kind of um, uh, the New York punk, punk underground stuff, you know, the New York Dolls and all that came from all that. Um, and then, it, you know, you got into to soul music to kind of Philadelphia, American soul music uh, through Bowie. You got into Kraftwerk and German electronic music, you know, so all uh, And he was also, he also kind of, Turned you on to people like kind of Burroughs and Ginsburg and all this kind of stuff in the beats. So, you know, he referenced all this stuff, um, Lindsey Kemp and Mime and all. You know, he, he just threw everything out there and he didn't kind of try to hide anything. He said, This is why this, is, this comes from here, this comes from here. Um, and it was an incredibly generous thing for an artist to do because most of them aren't like that. Most of us tend to hoard our influences and kind of, um, or not even acknowledge them. But he was very overt about that. And it was a tremendous thing. To do to give a, a generation of young spotty teenagers all this enablement, you know, all these, you know, and it's like um, Bowie was basically at my school, you know. But you know, I learned things from from listening to to Bowie and reading Bowie's interviews, because um, he was he was entirely self-taught himself. He was just a curious man, basically. who went and looked at things uh, and referenced things, and um, he just shared this wealth of knowledge with a bunch of working class kids that were fascinated by his music, you know. So, I mean, you could take it anywhere you want to, you know, there's like, you could you could see Bowie as just, you know, like Slade or T-Rex as a glam rock kind of mu- musician at the time and Ziggy Stardust and all that, which was exciting and brilliant. But you could see him as this artist at all these layers. And uh, because I was always quite a pretentious kind of sort of artsy sort of kid in a lot of ways, that I was drawn to that side of him. I was really sort of um, you know he became a, a distant mentor and you know that it was like that so that was a, the overwhelming kind of influence and the starting point for me and it was always music you know it was all because uh, I was obsessed with music and music is much more if you're working class and uh, live in the schemes at Edinburgh you can't really you know you're in a you don't really have room to have loads of books stacked up you know you don't have book, bookshelves because they're, they're tiny little apartments and stuff so um you uh you tend to you know you tend to you, know, you tend to gravitate towards music because it's much more instant and it's you know it's, it's, it's there it's available um um so yeah i mean uh, that was you know and, and with that kind of on you know i mean people like um you know like, jo- like joy division um can you know like like obviously like kind of the the pistols and the clash and then kind of um uh Joy Division, like Nick Cave, Shane McGowan, people that can tell a story, balladeers that can tell a story, and you know, um, so that they—I was always drawn towards them, and uh, that was—they were a major influence on me. Some of them were contemporaries, but they were—you know—they were—they were were actually doing stuff when I was kind of thinking what I should be doing, like you know, and you know, and I was trying to do what they were doing in music, but failing. so it uh, was—you know—so it was. They they were massively influential uh, too, um, so so yeah. So it was like very much from music and um, in terms of literature, it was. What uh, you know, the, the first thing that really interested me. I, 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 one of the first things that interested me was my my uncle Jack, who was a fireman. He got all this Open University stuff. Um, so he gave he bequeathed me all this open university stuff. I got all these books, you know Eve, Evelyn wall and all this kind of stuff that normally you would never read um, from from a house scheme in Edinburgh, but I got into all this stuff. Um, and then I saw like one of the musical, the musical the nME, which was my Bible, the, the new musical Express, um, had stories reviewed by James Kelman. And I thought this is bizarre, you know having us a, a, a writer, a novelist or you know re- having the stories reviewed. And I thought, um, I've got to check this guy out. So I checked him out through the NME and then it's like from from him there was a whole sort of um a whole line of Scottish fiction opened up, like um, you know, Alistair Gray, um, Janice Galloway who'd come along later, but also going right back into um into you know James Hogg kind of justified sinner, Robert Louis Stevenson, all this kind of stuff. They thought there was a brilliant tradition of Scottish writing. Um and, and through my uncle Jack, I'd gotten to all the, the English classics, like um, you know, from even more I backtracked into uh, the Brontes and um, and um, the um, uh, Jane Austen and all that uh, stuff. And then I, you know, so so and then you know, so Bowie kind of gave me the American Beats, you know, the Kerouac, Burroughs, Ginsburg and all, that, which is much more exciting to me. And I was discovering stuff on my own, like I discovered um kind of just browsing around in bookstores. I discovered Pimp by Iceberg Slim and um I that was a massive, yeah, I mean that was a, a massive book for me to to find them on my own and I, and um I got into all these other stuff, his novels that like trick baby and kind of uh, and it was um and you know, and, and from Iceberg Slim, I got into reading all the Black Panther stuff, like you kind know, of Bobby Seale, Eldridge Cleaver, Angela Davis, and you know, so it was it was like, um, it's like, you know, these these things always have this kind of sort of cascade effect. You know, you 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 find something else, and then you find something else, and you get into, you know, you get into Dostoevsky's *Crime and Punishment*, and then you're you're reading Tolstoy, and then you know, and then you kind of. Um, you know, you you get into um, you get into Gabriel Garcia Marquez, a hundred years, a thousand years of solitude, and then you're reading your 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 are referencing all these obscure Cuban poets and stuff like that. So it all, you know, that that's a great thing about um, culture. You didn't need algorithms back then. You just found stuff. You know, you just kind of you had your own internal kind of algorithms, which was just natural inquiry.
1: Did you uh, DBC Pierre has this concept of writers having a jury when we're working, a jury of people that are kind of looking over our shoulders at what we're work, working on. Do you have one? Of, do you have a jury while you're working? No, I
0: don't, I'm not, at least I'm not conscious of it. Um, I'm kind of, um, I'm the, the opposite really. I think that uh, I don't really write with anybody in mind. I don't write with any antecedents in mind. I'm not like kind of um, aware that any you know, appeal that um i'm striving to do something that's original and i don't think i know i know it's not in a lot of ways because everything comes from something else like you know but i don't really see uh i don't really see kind of um myself as part of any kind of tradition or anything like that um i don't have any concept of an audience either you know it's like it's it's funny because uh, working in tv now uh when you're buying scripts out you know, it's like you get to the point where you're where you where you're you're ready to go into production, and it's always the the last drafts of it are always to you. T- you start you start asking your producers start asking about audiences. Your TV companies start asking about who's it for, which demographic, and all that. You know, and I never think about that when I'm writing. So you have to start thinking about that uh, when you're writing for TV at some point, basically. You know, or or, or even writing for film because it's so market driven. Um, but uh, with novels I've never had to think about that and I've, I've been lucky that I've, um, I've probably had a publisher who, who's indulged me you know it's like because I've, I've managed to keep selling which is unusual for somebody who's not in genre fiction you know to, to keep right. selling books in this way and but um, I've been fortunate enough to be able to do that so I've had a have had a, a lot more freedom I think than a lot of writers have uh, and yeah, so I, I don't really have any consciousness, you know, behind, you know, but again, I'm the type of writer who tends to let the subconscious kind of do all the heavy lifting. I don't really, um, I don't really think I'm, term, you know, I'm, even when I'm kind of crafting something, I'm not really thinking about it um, overtly. You know, it's only when, um, when I get to the, the final drafts of a, a book that I start to have to, to focus.
1: Mm. When, when you got success it seems like i think from the outside we a lot of us would think that you would have an opportunity to meet some of your heroes like to meet david bowie and <laughs> gain access I, I,
0: I stood him up twice um he kind of first time was when he was uh he was presenting the train film party in new york um and he was kind of host one of the people that were hosting at the other launch of transporting in new york the movie And he do it, and I was supposed to go over there, and I thought, I can't go over and see Barry because I'm going to turn into a 14-year-old girl. I'm going to be asking him, you know, it's like, the man deserves dignity, you know? It's like, I can't, and I I, I can't, I wouldn't, you know, I'll make an absolute cunt of myself. I can't fucking do this, like, you know? So um, I basically thought, no, I mean, it's like, keep him as an icon. You know, I mean, just keep him as this iconic figure, this godlike figure. And I've known people, I mean, I've become friends with Iggy Pop, and Iggy Pop always says to me, Oh, you Irvine, you really like David, man, you should have done that fucking thing, man. You know? Um, but it was like, you know, and it's it is kind of it's a kind of regret, but it's not, you know, he, you know, it's like you'll always be a god to me now, you know. And this the second time was he, he he got in touch um through his people and um Invited me to have dinner with him in the ubiquitous chip restaurant in Glasgow when he was on the Glass Spider tour, and I thought I can't do this. It's David Bowie. I'm going to turn into. A f- I'm going to- I'm- He deserves to be treated with dignity. He doesn't deserve an arsehole fucking slobbering all over him. And I had enough fame myself by that time. Of people who were kind of like you know just standing. You huh? you know it's like you know, and I couldn't I couldn't subject him to that. You know I knew how it felt and. Uh, I couldn't subject him to a drooling fanboy, basically. I didn't trust that I had enough dignity around him to be cool, you know, and he deserved something to be cool and human to him, you know. And um, and I probably, myself, probably have, you know, maybe too much personal dignity to to prostitute myself in that way, even because that's what I knew I would do, you know. So uh, it's like um, one thing that I do regret, that I wasn't able to, to tell him how much that he meant to me but, again, there's nothing, you know, there's nothing worse than somebody saying, oh, your book changed my life. This is what it meant to me. You, think, you know, There's nothing worse than that. There's nothing you can do with that as a person. So I'm glad I spared them that, too.
1: Did you have a, a pantheon of any others that would reduce you to this 14-year-old girl?
0: No, nobody else would. Nobody else had that power. I mean, when I met Iggy Pop, I was quite nervous. But Iggy Pop was always my kind of surrogate crazy big brother. Basically, like, you know, and, um, you know, when I met him, I just kind of, uh, I met him in New York and I saw him just coming towards me. I just ran at him and grabbed a hold of him and hugged him. Like, hey, yo, how are you fucking doing? You know? um, because it was, you know, it's just like, I thought that's the only thing that's going to stop me from making a fool of myself. It's just to sort of grab him and be big mates and sort of, you know, so... um so, yeah, no, he's, he was, he's brilliant, you know, so it's like, and I'm glad that I met him, because he's such a great guy, and such a smart, intelligent man to, to talk to about things, um, so, uh yeah, I mean, uh, everybody else, have, you know, it's like, um uh, it's a, so may, this makes me sound really that arrogant, but I'm not really that impressed by people as such. You know, I mean, I'm 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 impressed by everyone, but I've got a kind of democratic spirit about it. Um, I'm not really because I mean, people have said to me that you you you're some kind of genius. You've done great work and all that kind of stuff. But the, I'm just an average person. Other, the only thing that's kind of maybe different about me is the stuff that I have put out. You know, and I see other people like that as well. You know, I'm not kind of sort of um, about to to say to somebody like, you know, you know you, you've you done some brilliant albums, obviously, you've done some, you have done some great but you're not a fucking god, you're just another person in the street, basically, you know, and then, you know, that's how, you know, that's how I like to be treated, and that's how I like to, that's how I think of other people, and that's the reality of it, you know, so I don't really um, search out people's company, and when you, when you do meet uh, very brilliantly creative people, it's just such a, a strange thing because some of them you can just see that they're the person that's written and done or you know, recorded or whatever, all this stuff, you know, and other ones are just very, very boring. And you think um, this, everything that they have that's interesting or artistic or creative just comes right out in their work. You know, there's nothing else, basically. Um, and, uh, you know, so it is, it's a, It's it's not, um, you know, it's not a kind of... Uh, a thing that you really, you know, you, the 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 work to me is always the important thing. You know, I, I won't follow, I very rarely will I follow one writer or follow one person, you know, and buy the but get all their stuff slavishly. I want to check out, I mean, I'm a browser, I won't say, you know, if I like, um, for example, if I, if I you know, a novel that I really love is Money by Martin Amis, but I'm not going to buy every single book by Martin Amis. or so read every single book by Martin Amis. I'm going to just browse at Dust Jackets again and read the Dust Jackets and read you know, what this is all about. And then I'll buy it on that basis and I'll look at the name on the cover last, basically. Yeah?
1: Well, it's funny with fame or po- popularity, I always have the sensation when I go to a concert uh, of a of a band that I've never seen before, that it's like I'm surrounded by the ex boyfriends of the girl I want to fuck. Yes, it's not yeah. always a pleasant yeah. thing. It's, not, it's
0: like, not a comfortable thing. Like yeah,
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't like being part of this twenty thousand group that just is in yeah, love. There, so yeah, well. and that's,
0: I mean you think you know I've got to compete with all of those bastards to get to home, like, you know, and, you know I, I just can't do it, like, you know. So you still, you get into that thing, like, um, that massive competitiveness when you're talking to people at the bar, you know. Yeah, I was into this guy long before you ever fucking heard of from, I've got this fucking bootleg and back and, you know, so you start all that shit, like, you know, and I don't know who played bass on the third track on the second side and all this stuff. But, you know. So, yeah, definitely.
1: Well, why don't we get to where boxing kind of? Because I mean, that was one thing that Bill Hillman told me is that you're you're a nutcase when it comes to boxing. So I'm I'm very curious yeah. to see how well, i came... got yeah, I've got a session
0: down in my local gym uh, later on t- this afternoon. You know, which um, I kind of went. Um, I went out the other night there and I went to this little speakeasy which we shouldn't have gone to, but we um, we got a bit. Um, up and then I, I thought, God, I've got boxing tomorrow, you know, and I was like, my breathing wasn't all it could have been like, you know, so hopefully I'll be a bit better today and, uh, you know, it'll be, it'll be fun. But uh, I love it. You know, it's like when you're, the great thing about um, boxing and doing the training is that you're, see, you're, you're sitting down at a desk writing all the time and boxing is just, you get, it gets you moving, it gets you up and, you know, it gets you doing things and, you um, being active. But also it gets your your head just kind of gets focused again, gets reset because you you your brain unspools as a writer. You're all over the place. You're like kinda of tapping away and you're thinking, you know, it's like whereas boxing bang, you're right in that ring, somebody's there with you. You're you know, you're kinda of right in the, the center of it. Even if if you're doing sparring, even if you're doing pads, you've got somebody to you know, you've got to engage with them. Um, and uh, even if it's a bag, you've got you know you, you hit that bag and all that, and that's the thing that's there. Uh, so it pulls you right back into the moment, and it really focuses you. So it's, I think it's a great counterbalance to writing. I think they complement each other fantastically.
1: When did when did you first become aware of boxing back back in Scotland? Well, I think right, it's, it was when it was a
0: kid. It was kind of steeped in it. It's like. Um, there people in, the, in my family that did it. I was taken to the boxing club at eight years old, basically, and... Um and I was like, I hated it when I first met him, I was taken there to Leith Victoria. I absolutely hated it because I was this, like, kind of poncy kid that wrote poetry for girls and all that. And I was like, kind of, you know, I just want to be the little wallflower. And, you know, and it's like, no, no, come on, you little poof. Get to that fucking boxing club and all that. Like, get these fucking gloves on. Get wrapped up. And it was a while. It took me. And it was like, I was like, oh, it took me a while to. But the thing is, it's like... Um, it is so addictive, you know. It's such a, it's it's such a, um, you know. They, they say boxing is a sport that all others aspire to, and the great thing that I was blessed with having, a, you know, I was actually blessed now with having absolutely no talent whatsoever um, as a boxer, and I think that's a that's a great thing because you want to you you want to as a boxer you've either got to have no talent at all or be the most one of the most talented people in the world because. Um, in between that that messy bit in between is just a lifetime of pain you know because right. if, if you realize you realize where you're left if you've got if you've got zero talent you think well i'm not going to get my face punched in too badly or i'm not you know i'm going to just butt out of this or no i'm going to take you know, i'm going to um i'm going to train my brother idiots so you know that uh, but if you start to kind of um if you're just a little bit good you know, you're just you're just waiting for your first. Um, you're just building yourself towards your first smashing. Like you know, if you can't let go of it, if your adrenaline's gone by then. Then you are just can't afford it for anybody that's you know, that's decent. So I'm glad that I was crap, basically. But um, I'm glad that I was um, addicted to it, and uh, it's just such a. It's just you know, it's like it's such a big part of my life that I could you know I, I couldn't give it up. I, you know, I, I probably. I mean, I'd probably, if I had to, I'd probably rather give up the writing than, than the, the boxing. Really? Yeah, That's- I mean, I just, you know, it's like, the, I just feel that um, I look at all my pals that are my, that are my age, or you know, some of my pals that are my age that don't do anything like that, I think, this is like kind of, you know, they're, they're about five times the size of me, basically. And, you know, kind of, some of them are, you know, are, are very kind of unfit. They can't walk up, you know, down the street and all that, you know. And I'm thinking, like, um, fuck that. This is what kind of boxing's given me just because I've trained compulsively. And you don't hear about that thing. You hear about, you know, people that have got stacks of medals and have won belts and all that. They talk about what boxing's given them. And um, it has given them so much, but it's given me a lot. It's, it's given me a lot of fitness, it's given me a lot of confidence, it's given me a lot of um, um it's just given me a, a, a whole community that I can go to. I mean, it's like um, in Chicago, I go to the local club and it's the one place in America where you can meet, where, where black people, white people, um, uh, Latin people all hang out together. It's the one place in America where that happens. America is like an apartheid state, basically, and this is the one spot where it happens. Like, you know, and it's the same in the UK. um Back, I've got a, a club that I go to in um, in London. I've got a club I go to in Edinburgh. I've got a couple of clubs I go to in Edinburgh, and it's just you know you've got a community there. You've got so many diverse and interesting people, and all that feeds in to my my role as a novelist. I'm meeting so many incredible, interesting people in a boxing club. You meet more interesting people in a boxing club than you do in any other institution because. They're all coming with it from different motivations. You know, you've got the, you've got the manic, crazy person who just wants to calm down and discipline themselves, so, learn some self-discipline, so they're not going to get into trouble and bother. You've got the person who's got no confidence at all, who's timid, who wants to kind of sort of, um, who wants to kind of be tougher and develop a sense, you know, a, a bit of confidence and a, and a second skin, and you would never get anywhere in the world where these two types of people become friends. You know, the archetypal the archetypal bully and the archetypal victim, they become friends. They become, you know, they... they, they and there's such a diverse community around boxing. And, pe- you know, it's like, it really annoys me that people think this, that boxing is just some kind of sport for thugs knocking fuck out each other. It's nothing to do with that whatsoever.
1: What do you think about the fact that you had boxing gyms traditionally for a 100 years, always occupying this role in struggling communities as this kind of lifeline for troubled kids. And now like the New York model, which is being spread all over the country is the only way for these gyms to survive is if they're completely gentrified by sort of wall street or very wealthy people, white collar people who will then hire Xboxers boxers to look after them. Like it's not servicing the communities of the no. country anymore the way it used to. And
0: that's that's exact. But that's the same in everything. Everything has kind of um, been um, everything that's cultural, whether it's every kind of sport, like whether it's kind of you know, like working class football clubs in the community in Britain, um, whether you know boxing. Everything has been commodified and it's been taken into this whole. has been appropriated and taken into this whole arena of um, of of kind of rich, wealthy, indolent people who can afford to to indulge in it, you know, so it is, a, it is, a, it's, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, um, I'm not knocking white collar boxing, because I'm probably, I'm one myself, you know, it's like, I think, in and in it is, it's a great thing for people to get fit, and I would recommend it, you know, I think everybody should do it, but um, I think, you know, there is a, you know, it's like, you know, as you say that, you know, traditionally the boxing club is much, 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 much more than a place where people go just to kind of mess around and train and fight and ring. It's just a, it's a whole hub of a community and it's a whole, it's a whole way that um, people who are kind of troubled and a bit lost can find a community, find a home and they can do something. They can, you know, they can, they can, they can excel, and they can, they can get fit, they can be disciplined and they can sort of take that confidence Um you know all over uh, into all aspects of the life yeah so um yeah i mean it is, it's like a, it's a it, it's a shame that everything has become commodified yuppified. it's you know in that way but that's um but again it's like boxing in some ways is like a microcosm of the the world in general and what's happened to working-class communities in general they've been um marginalized oh, and all facets
1: I was I was wondering what you made of the election. I mean, you know, living in America as you have on and off, uh what did what did Trump what did Trump being elected mean to you and what did Trump being voted out mean to you?
0: Um I thought when he was elected America was going into a very dark place um because you can't you know, it's like um you can't really think that um, you know. In Britain, has kind of followed suit to an extent with Johnson. You can't really think that sort of um, dumb, overprivileged, racist arseholes are going to do anything for you. But um, he was, you know, in some ways that a lot of these guys are kind of um, the the you know the sort of right wing demagogue guys are kind of great situationists, and they were able to exploit the. Um, this traditional um, decline of the working class community, and, just in the, and um, the, the, the sort of um, the anger that working people felt about being left behind in the whole globalised neoliberal kind of stuff, um, social order, you know. But again, it's like who who we had, who who benefited from that were kind of um, were people who were not going to do any good for the people that that they, they managed to con into sort of. Um, Voting for them, and it's funny now. It's like uh, I saw this thing on uh, Twitter the other day. There about uh, this nurse in North Dakota. She was saying that um, all these old people who were dying of COVID, um, they were just so angry because they didn't believe that COVID existed. You know, they didn't believe it was going to it existed. it was any it could be any harm to them, and uh, they were dying in this kind of horrible, bitter anger. But they were dying in some ways as they lived. You know, they've been indoctrinated by Fox News for thirty odd years, and you know they've been dripped fed all this poison. It's a horrible thing, but um, you know it's like people. You know, they, they, these kind of um, kind of uh, supposedly nationalistic kind of billionaires have have, um, have moved into the, to posit themselves as the opposite of these globalists, when they're basically all singing from the same song sheet, and that is to to um, to create kind of power and fiefdoms and, and, um, and it's, you know, I think that, uh, I mean, I was delighted when he lost the election and uh, I think it was like almost like it was, it could have been the last election in America. Hmm.
1: I, I wanted to ask you about Twitter. You seem like one of the most adept novelists that I've ever seen on Twitter. I, how is it not a hindrance to your productivity? <laughs> and, what is your knack in such a cancel culture for being so outspoken, but seemingly, uh, I don't know, you just seem to navigate it really adeptly.
0: Well, what I do is, the most important thing that I do is um, I, bro- I use it to broadcast rather than debate. You know, I'm not interested in debating anybody at all on Twitter, anybody that I don't know. But, you know, I'll talk to anybody, I'll talk to, debate them in the pub, but I'm not going to sit And you you can see that it frustrates people because they say, well, that's not a very positive thing to say. How do you, you know, and it's like, fuck off, fuck off, fuck off. You know, it's like, these are fleeting thoughts that are coming into my head. I'm not going to try and justify them. They're out there, bang, that's it, you know. Um, And uh, so that's, I think a lot of the cancellation comes from a kind of pile-on culture that's not so much somebody makes a statement, a silly statement, they then go through the stupidity of trying to defend it and they get dragged into these arguments and debates and there's a whole chain of he said this and he said that and everybody kind of jumps and gets uninterested. If you just broadcast, you just bang, quitting thought, this person's a Donald Trump's a cunt, Oof, that's not very, you know, it's like, but that's not very positive. You don't understand what he's doing for a minute. Fuck off, not interested. Like, you know? <laughs> so that's the way I basically operate. <laughs>
1: Interesting. You don't find it... Um a toxic place to visit or an addictive place to visit?
0: Yeah, well, it is, it is, you know, it's like you have to limit yourself. I mean, but really, uh, I'm on it most when I've got something to, you know, I've had my offense documentary that was, 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 was working yesterday. So I'm on it when I've got something to sell, you know, basically that's, that's my, um, that's my sort of, uh, my MO with it, you know, wait till you've got something to sell and then sort of get into it. Um, and um, then, you know, it's you know. So then I'll, I'll, I'll pull back for a bit, and then I'll wait until I've got have something else out. I've had the book out with Alan Warner and John King, and I've had the the documentary out. So uh, when I have something else out, I'll, I'll push this leaflet into the hands of however many people, basically. And that's that's really. It sounds a bit kind of instrumental, but to me, it's not a forum for debate. You can't you can't give social media that kind of respect it doesn't deserve. You know what I mean? It's a playground. You know what I mean? It's like a, it's like a little game, basically. You know what I mean? It's not. A, it's not. A, if you want a debate, go to the pub and chat to people and have a conversation with them there. You know, or sort of. Um, see, online is a. It's, it's not. You're. You're not. Um, because you're isolated from the consequences of face to face debate. Um, people are just. You know. They're. They're emboldened to talk a lot of shit and to try to get a kind of reaction. And it's. Uh, so. It's not really a proper place for debate, so I don't make the mistake of seeing it as that. You know, I've, I've worked out what it is now, and I use it in that way.
1: What um, what do you think would be different if Train Spotting was coming out this year rather than twenty seven years ago?
0: I don't think it would come out this year. I think I would probably have to self publish it. I think that um, you know, publishing industry has changed. It's like what you were saying about the the boxing has become. Um, it's, it's again. It's about the commodification of culture. You know, what I mean, it's like um, art and sport now don't exist outside of the entertainment industry, and uh, that's that's the unfortunate side of it. There's not there's not art in itself. There's not sport in itself. It's always you know if it if it's if it becomes any good or at any level, it becomes commodified. So that's the sort of um, that that's the world that we live in. So it would be not. It wouldn't be
1: instantly sellable or marketable as a novel interesting and yet it was gigantically successful in its day
0: yeah and it still is you know it's still kind of um it still sells incredibly well so um but um it was you know it, it's not anything that you could say this is going to work out you know um this is going to be a great novel this is going to you know this is you couldn't have um forecast that then so it was like my publisher said it would sell maybe a few thousand copies uh, if I was lucky. Um, and, uh, that's, uh, you know, that, that's uh, the, the, beauty of it, but, um, there's so many kind of, um, really great novels that probably won't get published unless people publish them, um, you know, self-publish them, and then they may find a following, and then it will get picked up by a publisher then.
1: Uh, Bill Hillman told me that, uh, one of the things you did for him was introduce him to some of the characters. From Train Spotting, the real life inspirations, and I—I I was wondering, what was it like for them uh, in '96 when the film comes out and becomes this massive sensation?
0: Uh, I've been quite lucky because um, you know a, a lot of my, the you know the the, the community that I've, you know that I'm from and of you know that, that that inspire me to write. I've been very positive about what I do, so I've been kind of, I've been quite lucky. Then and a lot of my, you know, my, my 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 pals. It's um you you have to, you know. It's, it's, I think they they are always they always want to see if I've changed or not, you know. And it's like kind of you know it's that kind of thing that um you know you can sit in the you go and sit in the pub, and uh, one of the things I'll, I'll try and wind them up. I'll say like um, you know they look at me, you know, they're sitting there looking at me, I'm just off the flight from, from Chicago or Miami, you know, and um, they're waiting to, they're waiting for me to make a mistake, basically, and I'll, I'll, I'll just get out of the way, I'll say like, right guys, i got to go to the restroom, where is it? They go to the fucking restroom, you called it the fucking restroom, <laughs> cunt, and all that shit, so, so yeah, so it's like, I'll um, we'll get that out of the road soon, but uh, but yeah, it's, people have been very supportive of, of what I've done so particularly here in Edinburgh so that's been
1: great did any of your friends who were depicted in the film have objections to it or did they particularly enjoy uh weren't really depicted as nobody's
0: really depicted as such I mean every character is kind of a composite and it's like you know nobody could really recognize themselves in the film I mean some people think they can um and some people who maybe are more apparent don't recognize themselves in it but uh it's, you know, generally it's like, um, I think, you know, it's, it's funny. It's like people actually do kind of, have quite, have got quite a strong intuitive sense of how fiction works, of how writers create fiction, you know? Mm-hmm. It's like, you get the occasional kind of guy who'll come up to you and say, ah, you made half of that fucking stuff up. And I'll go, well, yes, because it's <laughs> made it all up, it's fiction, you know what I mean? So, um, but yeah, but uh, they've been pretty cool about it. Like, yeah. Uh,
1: last question was just, did you have a boxer that you were in love with? It seems like one of the great things boxing has is there's somebody your size, or there's somebody who fights the way you would want to fight yeah. in a way that the other sports don't often.
0: Well, there's quite a lot of them. I mean, it's like Kenny Buchanan was my my first hero growing up as a kid. He was a, a, a lightweight who won the the titles, uh, won them all abroad, like the you know, world, world titles abroad, um, but. Um, and you know, obviously, kind of my era, was like Muhammad Ali was kind of was, was always going to be the man. I would say um, Muhammad Ali, but um, one of my personal favourite fighters was uh, Sugar Ray Leonard because he fought um, he fought guys that were naturally bigger than him at one stage. He fought he fought in that fantastic kind of um, division of um, you know Marvin Hagler and Roberto Duran and Tommy Hearns and. There was also some, you know, at, at that time, there were some people like, you know, of, and, and even in, even Britain had a lot of really good fighters. that couldn't get past these that crowd that that field there. You know, it was like kind of Alan Minter and um, uh, you know, and Tony Simpson from Leicester, like Mark Killer from East London, and all. You know, these were they were really good fighters who would have um, who probably would have now would have been kind of um I know minute was a world champion but they would have been knocking at the door they would have had kind of world title bouts and all that but when you've got that kind of class and that division um you know it's like uh, it was just absolutely uh unbelievable And the the in the encounters that these guys had um, I think you know they 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 changed that that way because boxing has always been largely about the heavyweights basically and they changed that whole conversation they made you know they they made that the because of the you know the the, the combination of the power and the mobility um it was just uh it was just pretty amazing uh-huh.
1: i i really appreciate your time today i know how busy you are so i'll let you get yeah, back Bryn, been a pleasure. thank you so much irvine i really appreciate it cheers bud. take care right. buddy Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Tourist Information. The producers for the show are George Alarcón-Swebe and myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler. Thanks for listening.